and turn to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Uh, just a word on where we're going. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at Zechariah 3 and what is a great picture of the great exchange of Jesus uh, giving us his righteousness and our disgrace being given to him, justification uh, by his work alone. Next week we're going to look at Acts 15 when this doctrine of justification was finally being proclaimed now that Jesus had come, uh, but the good news was almost lost before it even got off the ground. So we'll look at one of the early debates over the gospel, and as, as an aside, but also an important part of that text, we'll look at why we do what we do as Presbyterians in light of our General Assembly coming up. So today we'll be in Zechariah 3, next week Acts chapter 15. So if you found Zechariah 3, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 3, 1 and following. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to him, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah, said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. This ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, we ask that You would sanctify us by it. Show us Christ and His grace in this vision that shows us our need for that grace. Uh, by that grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us into people who know You and love You and follow You more and more each day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks. Please be seated. I think we're all big fans of rags-to-riches stories, aren't we? Rags-to-riches stories. There's something really compelling about a story like that. Maybe it's the athlete from a small town, doesn't have much, but he wins the scholarship, graduating the top of his class, and he can go anywhere he wants. The whole world is opened up to him. Maybe it's the single mom who's struggling to make ends meet, and then she writes a best-selling novel series. I think my favorite rags to riches story is uh, that movie with Will Smith and his son Jaden, The Pursuit of Happiness. It's a great example based on a true story. A guy walks into an interview uh, in an undershirt and he gets the job anyway and he goes from homeless shelters with his son to being a successful stockbroker. It's a rags to riches story. There's something about that theme, uh, this, this sought after ideal of, of just making it against all odds that it works its way into the classics of literature. It works its way into our movie theaters, into our longings, our hopes, and our dreams. We love it because it holds out something attractive to us. Uh, it's this idea that hard work pays off, that there's no struggle that's uh, too difficult if we don't just apply a little more elbow grease. It's not the windfall stories that really get us. It's these stories of overcoming all odds, persevering, this rags-to-riches theme. But the Bible is about an even greater theme than rags to riches. It's an even greater story. 
It shows us the solution to a far greater problem than poverty or humble beginnings, a problem we can never overcome on our own, not even with ten lifetimes of hard work, sweat, and tears. The problem, of course, is our sin. Over and over again, Scripture tells us that we are sinners, and what we need isn't a rags-to-riches story, but a rags-to-righteousness story. That's what Zechariah 3, 1-5 is all about. This isn't a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of story. There's no climbing the ladder in the story of Scripture. It's far more amazing than that. There's no rags-to-righteousness story that you can do on your own. It's a story of divine intervention. There's no rags-to-righteousness without the divine solution of mercy and grace in Jesus. So we'll put the book of Zechariah into some historical context and just a moment. But what we see here in Zechariah 3, 1 to 5, is this rags to righteousness story of Scripture beginning with you and me dead to rights, rightfully accused because of our sin, with no defense to make of ourselves. And then we see Jesus silences the case against us, substituting himself in our place. Or to put it more briefly, Zechariah 3, 1 to 5 is all about the accuser's case against us, against you, silenced by the substitute. That's how we're going to unpack these five verses together. We'll look at the accuser's case and how it's silenced by the substitute. So first, the accuser's case against us. The accuser's case against us. Uh, When we come to this passage, we find ourselves sitting uh, in the visitor section of God's royal courtroom. In the visitor section of God's royal court, Joshua is being brought up on charges here in the presence of the divine judge who is also the king of kings. Who is Joshua? Well, I mentioned to the kids a minute ago, it's not Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Joshua. It's a different Joshua. This is the great high priest of God's people in Zechariah's day. Joshua, the high priest. It's important for us to remember that this is a vision. So as we get started, I just want to say visions take a little bit of heavy lifting. Uh, We need to remember what's happening as we go through this story. So here you have the real person, Joshua, who really was the high priest, and Zechariah sees him in this vision. We have to ask ourselves, what does Zechariah see, and what does what Zechariah see mean? That's going to help us as we go along. So what is Joshua, the high priest of Judah, what is he a picture of in this vision? Well, in these first five verses that we're looking at together, Joshua represents the people. He stands as a representative like the high priest was of the people in the temple as they worshiped God. Joshua, the high priest, would have taken the people and led them into worship. And that's what he does as a symbol in this vision. Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, and he's being accused in God's royal court. He's being brought up on charges. He stands impure and unclean before God. And he's representing the people in this vision. See, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, it had been taken into captivity for 70 years, exiled from the promised land. Now, 20 years after the fact, after they have been uh, returned to the land, 20 years after that, spirits are down in Israel. The place of worship in the Old Testament, the temple, uh, its foundations are there, but it hasn't been rebuilt The people had big ideas about how this restoration would be amazing and how it would take place. And even though they've been released, it all seems lost. Where is the great restoration we dreamed of? They think their problem is a torn down temple, but in all reality, 
Their problem is a much deeper problem, which they have not admitted. A more personal problem than that. And the fact that the great high priest is standing there in this vision shows there are serious issues to deal with before the people can even begin to dream about worshiping again in the temple. The people had rebelled against God and turned their hearts from Him. That's the reason that they were sent away in the first place. That was the deal when it came to staying in the promised land. You might recall we talked about this a few weeks ago in Revelation. The if you will indeed obey my voice. The if written over the old covenant in terms of remaining in the land as God's people. Choose life by obeying me and live. That was the old covenant with respect to being in the land. Those were the terms of the bond between the Lord and His nation. Saved out of Egypt by the powerful hand of the Lord, once and for all justified by faith in the Redeemer, the Lamb, the final sacrifice who would come. All of that is true. But when it comes to being in the land, to being blessed in this covenant relationship, this earthly life and blessing under the old covenant, that was the deal. And the people blew it. It depended on their obedience to remain. And they did not obey. So it seems like an obvious choice though, right? I mean, if it's stay in the promised land by obeying the Lord, why wouldn't you do it? The people didn't choose life. They chose to go their own way and serve their own gods. And the exile for their disobedience gave us this stark and vivid picture of the wages of sin. The death that follows rebelling against God. But what was a picture for us was not the final point in their story. And that's what Zechariah 3, 1-5 is going to get at. If that had been the final point, the Bible would have ended after the people were sent into exile. End of story. Roll credits. But after 70 years, the Lord brought them back and they were to rebuild the holy place of worship. Yet here 20 years later, there's no temple. Nothing has been rebuilt and the people seem just as rebellious and sinful than they were when they were sent into exile. The priest would stand in God's court. But as you heard and as we'll see further, Zechariah is standing in these filthy rags. He is not fit to represent the people. And in this vision, he represents a people who is not fit to worship God in purity and obedience to Him. So let's look at who this accuser is. We're looking at the accuser's case now, giving a little bit of context there. Who is the accuser that brings this case? And what is his case against us? The accuser is Satan. Satan makes a case against the people as he accuses the high priest in this vision. Verse 1 uh, refers to an accuser, and that's the Hebrew word for Satan. That's what it means. It means the accuser. You'll see if you look again at Zechariah 3.1, he is standing there at his right hand to accuse him. And that's one of the biggest things that the devil does. The Bible reveals this to us. He throws believers' sin in their faces and tempts their consciences every day. We have to be careful because we want to distinguish between Satan's accusations, how he is constantly throwing your guilt in your face, and the true guidance of our God-given consciences. Uh, The further I get into my third decade, I'm getting to know my food conscience better. Maybe some of you know what that's like, to get to know your food conscience. Uh, Of course, my wife Mariana helps me with that. Uh, You know what things mean when they call desserts uh, decadent chocolate cake. Uh, Your brain tells you the truth about what that piece of chocolate cake will do to you. Um, But you have to train that food conscience and follow what it's telling you. I don't always listen to it. I don't always follow it. But that's the dilemma, isn't it? A well-trained conscience that's been informed by the truth of God's Word, it's pricked when we're disobedient to the law, when we do our own thing, when we don't follow God's commandments. 
When it's functioning well, our conscience is a huge blessing. But our conscience can be out of tune for the gospel, making it easy prey for the devil's attacks. So when you sin, though, and you sense this unworthiness just settle in over your soul like a crushing weight of condemnation, Uh, when you believe and love and trust in Jesus, but you're tempted to crumple into a big ball of defeat when you sin, that's not your conscience. That is the accuser's attack. It's been said that his goal, unlike a well-trained conscience, is destruction, not redemption. It's to destroy you, not to redeem you. I think we all know what that destructive attack of the accuser feels like. And here's the thing, right? When the devil accuses us of sin, he's not wrong, is he? He's not wrong. It's not the whole story. And there's a wonderful answer to the problem, but the accusation is valid. When it comes to the accuser's case, um, first, the accuser is Satan. And second, let's look at how his case is solid. He has a solid case against us. What's so poignant about Satan's accusations in Zechariah 3 is that no one contradicts him. No one steps in and says, no, the people aren't like that. No, he has not done this. There's silence in the court in that regard. They've been caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They are guilty through and through. Joshua's own silence speaks a thousand words. He has nothing to say in his defense. And the same is true for us, isn't it? Even for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and have received his cleansing and even confess our sins week after week together with God's people, Satan's accusations are accurate. None of us are completely squeaky clean Christians. Something always sticks in Satan's accusations. Maybe you're here and you're feeling pretty sticky this morning with guilt or shame because of your sin. And if you're willing to admit that, that's okay because everyone here ought to be willing to admit that. You're not alone. We're looking now at uh, this evidence of Satan's accusations against us, and we see that his case is solid. Uh, Joshua clearly is standing there in these filthy rags representing the sin of the people. Uh, Some have tried to soften this and say that it means Joshua's robes were dirty because he was sprinkling himself with ashes and mourning because he's surrounded by contamination and sin. Babylon and its surrounding evil pagan people are just more than they can bear and the people are in mourning. But it just, we have to face the fact that here the the original word used in Hebrew does no favors to Joshua's condition. It's worse than the chicken livers I showed the kids. Maybe a dirty diaper gets closer to it. This is a word of impurity and just the nastiness of the people's sin. There's no getting around how they stink. The smell gives the people away, and the smell gives us away too. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing, I think, when we see a teenager come in and he just needs a shower and it just bowls you over, right? And you're like, oh my goodness, this kid. Uh, it's obvious sometimes that we need cleansing. And sometimes it's obvious enough that we have to admit it. But there's a more subtle problem, uh, and it's more dangerous even than stinking rags, and it's the, uh, what we might call the rags of self-righteousness. The rags of self-righteousness. The worst thing about these rags is that to everyone around us, we smell pretty good. We don't smell bad at all. Sometimes we think a good morality makeover is all we need, and then we're good. Uh, At least if someone's flagrantly evil or something is just absolutely clearly wrong, that can be addressed. Uh, But trusting in our own righteousness leaves us just as defiled in God's court, just as guilty. If we trust in our own righteousness, we're done for 
The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day will furnish him material for his charges. I think we can all admit that this is true. Spurgeon says, we're impatient one day, proud the next, angry another. Have you been impatient recently? Have you been proud, lustful, arrogant, sinfully angry, jealous, greedy, coarse or harsh, harsh with your words, with your tongue, maybe in the day of social media, coarse or harsh with your thumbs? Going on, Spurgeon says that his heart is full of sins like a den of unclean birds, and he wishes he could wring all their necks. It's a great picture. I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a chicken. Surely someone here has tried to catch a chicken. Uh, I grew up on the mission field in Mexico, and I've tried to catch a chicken, and it's not easy. Catching one is just hard enough, and our hearts are like a whole stinking chicken coop full of sin. Sometimes I think about uh, in Escondido, in California where I lived, I had a, a study that overlooked really nice view, but the problem was there were these power lines right outside my window, and we had a flock of parrots that would come and perch on this power line. There's a reason it's not called a flock, it's called a pandemonium. And they squawk, and they squawk, and they squawk. There's no peace with these squawking parrots carrying on, and that is not unlike your heart and the sin that just robs us of the peace that we might have in Christ. What do we do with it? You can't do anything about the birds. You're outnumbered. We can't do anything about the squawking sins in our own heart. There's too many of them. We need the Lord to intervene. So Satan accuses us and there's no hiding. There's no running from all the squawking sins in our heart. It's like, no, I'm not sinning. And the, the sins are there squawking and pointing at us. There's no covering the stink of the sin-drenched rags that we wear. And think about this now uh, from the perspective of Zechariah. He's a prophet in Israel. And he's seeing the high priest who's in need of this cleansing. He's seeing the high priest representing the people, but it's his high priest who's clothed in these filthy rags. And as Joshua comes to realize, we the people are impure. We need someone to intervene. We need someone to lead us into worship and to be purified, but his high priest is impure. That's bad news. That's bad news if the one person who could lead you in worship and cleansing and restoration is himself defiled. You might imagine Zechariah is getting nervous seeing this vision. The only hope is a priest who could perform his duties with purity and cleanliness on his behalf, and there he is standing there dressed in the rags of unrighteousness. It seems like the whole people are doomed until someone else speaks in this story. So we've seen the accuser's case. It's solid. It's irrefutable. It's frankly terrifying. But next we see the accuser's case silenced by the substitute. And this takes us to the beauty of the gospel. Look with me at verse 5. I love the last line of verse 5. Very last line of the passage. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Who is this angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Jesus. We see this because the angel of the Lord is sitting as the judge presiding over the case. Yet he can also speak of the Lord as a separate person. The one sitting over the case is the angel of the Lord. We see that in verse 2. He's just called the Lord. But later, he communicates what the Lord says, referring to another person. You have this father and son really being revealed here. We could dig further into it. But the best explanation is that this is 
the angel of the Lord representing the second person of the Trinity, the one who would come and whose name would be Jesus. So we could paraphrase this last line of verse 5, and Jesus was standing by. That line is full of gospel hope. Jesus is standing by. That's good news if you believe in Jesus. If you've turned by faith to Jesus, crying out to him to rid you of these filthy, stinking rags of sin, whether it's the obviously wicked kind of of, of sin and, and shame, or it's the delusional morality makeover kind of sin. They both stink, but by faith in Jesus, you can cling to him for forgiveness and renewal from that. We know the joy, don't we, of Jesus standing by? We read it this morning in 1 John 2.1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. We all want a man in our corner, right? If we're going up to go 12 rounds against the accuser, you want the best cut man in your corner that money can buy. If you're going up against a veteran prosecuting attorney with a solid case against you, the wages of sin is death, and he's bringing a solid case against you. You want a top-shelf defense. All of that is found in those words. Jesus standing by. Jesus standing by is the good news of grace. And it jumps off the page when all of a sudden, look at verse 2, the advocate yells, silence in the court. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Here we see the accuser's case silenced by the Lord himself, our substitute. He silences the case against Joshua and the people and against you with two truths that are good news today good news even today. First, the people are chosen for rescue. They're chosen for rescue. Look again with me at verse 2, where it says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? What does that mean? A brand plucked from the fire. Well, the exile, those 70 years in Babylon due to the disobedience of the people, it was a, a fire, a furnace like Egypt. That's how it's described throughout the Old Testament. It was a picture of the wages of sin. It was a picture of the grave. It was a picture of death. But that picture, like we saw earlier, wasn't the end of the story because there was a promise older than Sinai, older than that arrangement, the promise made with Abraham. You see, this is where Satan goes so wrong in his case against Joshua and by extension his case against you. In his case, whenever he accuses a Christian He points out the transgressions of God's law. And we say, right, okay, guilty. But that's all he does. They have sinned against God's law. Full stop. He holds the Ten Commandments up and he marks them up like a grater, you know, with their fiery red pen of judgment. I don't know if any of you teachers have ever done that. But he's being sneaky here, right? Because he's conveniently omitted the fact that this is not the full story. God's program and plan for grace still stands despite the people's sin, despite our sin. There was a promise yet to be fulfilled. He fails to mention it when he accuses you every single day. He fails to mention the good news of grace. It's a promise that we still need because of our sin. It's the promise that's fulfilled in Jesus. Paul talks about the promise in Galatians. In Galatians 3, he says that the law, which came 430 years after Abraham, can't nullify or cancel out the promise. Had the people broken God's law? Absolutely. But the law can't cancel the promise. 
The law can't cancel the promise of grace. And according to Galatians 3.16, that promise is Jesus. You see why that might be good news for you this morning? Jesus is standing by. Paul writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is a promise that we all need today. Jesus is standing by. Jesus fulfills the promise. He is the rest of the story when the accuser leaves out that information. It's good news for us right now in Warrington, Virginia. Because if Jerusalem wasn't chosen for rescue, if Jerusalem wasn't chosen for rescue, then there would be no Jesus standing by to save us today, here and now. Jerusalem is chosen for rescue so that the rescuer can come through her and through that rescuer, the robes of righteousness that you and I need. Rescue for all of God's chosen ones. It's that simple. No Jesus, no rescue. No Jesus, no new robes. Which is the second truth we learn in the accuser's case silenced by our substitute. It's my favorite part of this vision. We've seen they're chosen for rescue. That's part of how the substitute silences the case. But also they're clothed in righteousness. They're clothed in righteousness. We really come to the climax here of this rags to righteousness story in Zechariah 3, 4-5. Look there with me again. Zechariah 3, 4-5. The angel has rebuked the accuser. He says to those who were standing before him in this vision, okay, so don't parse out every detail, but in this vision, Zechariah sees how Joshua's problem is remedied by this new clothing. He says, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Here's where the gospel reality of this passage really sings. This is where the gospel really shines in the vision. The accuser Satan, we don't hear from him again after his rebuke. He slinks away. And then Joshua is totally reclothed. He's given a new wardrobe. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel. A preacher by the name of Thomas Manton said it best, I think, talking about these new robes which we're given. He says, there is no getting the blessing but in the garment of our elder brother. These are the hand-me-downs that we wear from the King of Kings. That's what makes us righteous. It's what the author of Hebrews says. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So we're consecrated. We're set apart. We're made holy children of God by the hand-me-down robes of our elder brother, Jesus. That's what you wear. The hand-me-downs of your elder brother, Jesus. The Son of God who came to save. So Joshua's symbolic filthy garments are removed. So is his iniquity. So is his sin. He's given the new pure robes of righteousness. And there's this kind of odd moment for us because we don't think about wearing turbans very much. Zechariah interacts. Put a turban on his head. Put a turban on his head. Why would he ask to put a turban on his head? Well, you've got to remember, what is Zechariah seeing in this vision? It's the high priest. It's the one who can deal with his sin. He asked for Joshua to be given a clean turban, filling out the vestments that a high priest would wear, making intercession for the people, leading them in worship, dealing with their problem of sin, 
Zechariah says, it's not enough to get a new robe. Put the turban on his head, please. I beg you, give him a clean turban so that he can stand before God on behalf of the people. It's part of the garments needed to make atonement for the people's sin in Old Covenant worship. This turban is pretty significant for us to understand in this vision because it gives us the answer to a really important question. How is any of this fair? How is any of this fair? If you're standing there accused and guilty before a holy God, stinking to high heaven because of your sin, and then you're just given new robes, how is that fair? We've fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. How is it fair to just be robed in the Lord's righteousness? So as the turban gets put on Joshua's head, the symbol starts to change. No longer does Joshua, the high priest, represent a sinful and filthy people because of their sin. Now you have a high priest who is clothed in righteousness, who is perfected and able to fulfill his work on behalf of the people. Does that remind you of anyone you know, Christian? Now, as a pure, faithful high priest, Joshua represents the Lord Jesus Christ. He represents our priest who can do the work on our behalf to save us and cleanse us from our sins. The accuser's case is solid, and it can't be silenced without justice. Our sins can't just be brushed under the rug or tossed in the dirty clothes hamper as we receive new wardrobes of grace. Something has to be done about it. That's why it's silenced by a substitute. Joshua represents the great high priest, and then pushing past verse 5 because you need to hear this, look at verse 8. Verse 8, we see that uh, he represents the branch, an offshoot or a branch from the lion, so to speak. This branch of the great king who will sit on David's throne. Jeremiah 23, 5-6 explains it like this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. And in the New Testament, we read those wonderful words, don't we? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A priest to die in our place. A king who will reign forever by conquering death for his people. A priest who clothes us in his own righteous robes, having won those robes for the people by his own blood. That's why Zechariah 3.9 says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. A single day. When suspended between heaven and earth, arms outstretched on a cross, our substitute, your substitute, silences the accuser's case against you forever. On a single day. His death in your place. His righteousness given for you. So let me ask you, are you seeking peace in your righteous substitute or in your own morality makeover? You think you can hide the filthy shame of sin? Can wash enough to be cleansed? Do enough good? Keep things you know, hidden away enough that maybe you'll stand before God and make it? Or are you resting in the finished work of the high priest Jesus. Incidentally, Joshua, even in the name, points to Jesus, the one who will save. 
Are you resting in Jesus? This is the greatest love you could ever hope for, the greatest story that could ever be true of you. And it is true because of Jesus, if by faith you have run to him. And Christian, when the accuser throws your sin in your face, which he will probably do in about 25 minutes or 48 hours, and you struggle again, feeling like you should crumple into a ball of defeat, remember that Jesus is standing by. He has done the work on your behalf. He has absolutely, finally, and forever fulfilled the law's demands. So you live out of gratitude for that, not trying to climb the ladder and approach God by your own works. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, you can say to the accuser, you have no case against me. Let's pray together and thank the Lord for making us a part of this wonderful story of redemption. Father, thank you for this picture of grace that is still just as rich and relevant today. Remind us daily that our advocate is beside us and that the accuser no longer has a case against us because of Jesus' robes of righteousness and because our priest and king substituted himself in death for us. Thank you that we now have a high priest who ever lives to intercede for us and that through him we always have access to the throne of grace for mercy and help in time of need. Help us to live worthy of this great gift we've received. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.